don't ever touch anything on my boat again. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about minutes 75 and 76, which begin with the pilot trying to free his skyboat from the tether and end with the mariner staring at Enola. Round and round and round it goes. Where the skyboat will go, nobody knows. <laughs> Probably back to the D's, but that's beside the point. Right. The way we start this minute, it seems like the most likely course is that it's going to crash <laughs> into the trimaran. Oh, that would be awful because not only would a plane be crashing into a boat, it would decimate the mast. It would likely explode with whatever fuel it has left. Straight up movie over at that point. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> there are many points where this movie should be over. I give credit to the pilot, a.k.a. Jack Black, that he is thinking fast of a way to free himself from this tether. He fumbles around in his jacket and he pulls out a gun that honestly looks very old-timey as I'm staring at it. And so I went on to the Internet Movie Firearms database and I said, what pistol is he using? And it turns out that he is using a Remington rolling block pistol, which was originally manufactured in the mid to late 1800s for the American Civil War. Oh, dear. Well, no wonder he can't hit the line. I'm reading a story about it on unblinkingeye.com, and it says that in November of 1866, the U.S. Navy ordered 5,000 of these pistols in the 50 caliber rimfire. So these are big bullets, perfect for shredding cable and whatnot. What's interesting about what the pilot is doing here is that he's leaning out to the side of the plane even though there is cable that he could shoot that is inside the plane. Yes, there is. And I can still picture bad things happening if he were to snap it inside the plane, namely the ricochet of that line that we talked about last week. However, his positioning <laughs> is very awkward. It's also very dangerous. He is trying to fly this plane at yep. the same time, and the plane can't do its own thing. Because it's tethered and it needs to fly in a circle. Oh, this is just tricky. I don't think there is any easy way for him to get out of this. And it's so awkward because he starts off aiming with his right hand, reaching across his body, trying to keep his left hand on the controls. And he switches up. And the next time we see him trying to shoot this cable, he's switched the gun to his left hand, which he clearly isn't at a good angle for. He's firing off these shots and they're going wild. One of them punches through the sail next to the mariner's head as he's climbing the mast. <laughs> the pilot is clearly not trying to hit the mariner. That is not his goal, but that could be the side effect of his actions. Yes, very much so. It says in the book, a bullet tore through the sail next to him. 
Not from the machine gun, but something smaller caliber. A pistol. Was that damn pilot taking pot shots at him? He grabbed a line, swung out from the mast, and yanked his spear gun off his shoulder. Drawing a bead on the plane, he sent a spear winging toward the son of a bitch. He could hear it thunk, which meant that he'd probably hit the plane, but not the pilot. But maybe the guy would be distracted long enough for the mariner to swing out and cut the shuddering harpoon line, setting them both free. Four pistol shots stitched across the sail next to him, and as he ducked the bullets, the knife slipped from his hand and went tumbling, then clattering to the deck. Oh no, that's completely different than how it happens in the movie. And so much more exciting! (laughs) Yeah, it is more exciting. I like that the pilot took more shots at that line. Yeah. I like that the mariner dropped the knife. That would have been a great visual. It would have. First and foremost, I want to say that it's fun that the Mariner and the Smoker Pilot have the same goal, but different motivations for achieving that goal. Right. They both want to save themselves. Yeah, they both want to snap that line. So it's a shame that there isn't a way they can work together. Yeah, but it is also funny to see Kevin Costner reach the top of the mast and swing that knife up at the line that he just can't reach. Curse these stubby and ineffectual arms. (laughs) I think dropping the knife would have been better, more Mm. visually interesting. Like have him lash out with it, and then maybe the tip of the knife catches on the thing. It doesn't cut the rope, but because of the momentum, it slips out of his hand and just spirals down. Yeah. You could even get a great visual of it landing point first into the hull. Oh, like especially if it landed right in front of Helen and Enola. Yes. Like they're cowering at the base of the mast and the knife falls down like right in front of Enola's face. Yes. (laughs) And that could have led into a moment of badassery from Helen to grab that knife and, I don't know, do something useful with it. I don't know what she could do useful with it, but something. (laughs) A little bit of redemption for Mm -hmm. her. Because her performance so far in this fight has not been stellar. No. No, it hasn't. But in the movie here, instead of all the swinging around and the knife dropping and whatnot, the mariner and the pilot both take aim at the tether at the same time. Or at least the smoker pilot is aiming at the tether. I'm not exactly sure what the mariner is aiming at because he's hanging off the mast and he's holding his gun out as if he's aiming at the plane. I kind of assumed that he was aiming for the tether because it is just like the Mariner to achieve his goal on the first shot. Whereas the pilot and Helen as well struggle to complete their goals. Their goals aren't always even necessarily clear. But the Mariner's goal, especially in this fight, and you know what? Back in the Atoll, his motivations were very clear. Always very clear. And he achieved those without a lot of fuss, Mm -hmm. which is what we get here. One shot, he does what nobody else could do. He snaps that line and then the plane just flies off. Like, okay, I've had enough. (laughs) I quit. I'm going home. (laughs) And okay, this visual. Oh, my word. Of the trimaran had been pulled quite far over to one side due to the tension on the plane. So when that was suddenly released, instead of getting some sort of visual of that line whipping around and maybe causing some damage, instead of that issue, we get the slamming down to the surface of the water of the trimaran. It's fantastic. And a natural consequence of that is that the mariner goes flying off of that mast. So good. 
my favorite part of this might be the line falls away from the plane, the float falls down, and then you see the Mariner still holding his gun out. He hasn't fired yet. And his eyes go wide as he feels himself being pulled backwards. And then when it hits the water and you get that slingshot effect and he flies through the air like a shooting star and drops into the water. Yes. And it is amazing. It's and I so love it. good. Visually, my favorite part of this sequence is that when the trimaran slams down on the water, there's such a beautiful and distinct and linear splash. It's gorgeous. It feels very reminiscent of the visuals that we get a lot from George Miller, where there is a line of vehicles driving on the desert. So we get all these dust lines that are all parallel to each other. It feels the same way to me. I love the part where Helen and Nola are standing on the netting and watching him fly overhead. It's They're very, tracking his progress across the sky. It's very much like watching someone on a trapeze. What surprises me about this situation is that the Mariner splashes down, seaplane flies away, and the Mariner surfaces, and he's surrounded by a lot of floating debris. And I'm not exactly sure where that debris came from. Yeah, I agree. That's a mystery. I had assumed that just more stuff got flung off. Yeah. But as we watch him fly through the air and land in the water, there's not really anything else with him. So I'm not really sure. I think the easy answer is that it is stuff that was on the deck and in the netting. Yeah. Like in its normal storage space that also got flung up <laughs> into the air. I think that's the easy answer. I think the legit answer is that it was more visually interesting for him to come pop up in the water if other things were in the water. Yeah. It gives you a sense of scale to tell how far away from the boat he is. I'm not sure what's more impressive, the Mariner falling into the water or the harpoon gun, now that there's no tension on the line, slipping free of the upper supports and crashing down through the netting. Oh my goodness. And the way that Helen and Enola jump at it. It is a very awkward moment for them because the danger is suddenly over and it's, uh, it's time for the reckoning. So Ugh. Helen, at least, is going to start feeling very nervous and whatever chemicals that go along with that. And then something else happens. And I sympathize with her reaction. As the Mariner swims back to the boat and starts climbing out of the water, Helen is saying, oh, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry you didn't give me much of a choice. I know, but you ran away. For a long time in this movie, we've been pretty solidly Team Helen against the Mariner. Yeah. But it's hard not to sympathize with the Mariner because he had a plan and that plan was upset. And now the consequences of that plan is that a lot of his boat is damaged. There is some real serious damage on this boat. This is more than a few drawings. In the book, it says, He swam quickly to the boat and hauled himself aboard. He glanced around his ship. It looked like hell. He glanced at the woman. She stood sheepishly, the child cowering behind her. I'm sorry, she said. I was just trying to... His look silenced her. He picked up his knife from the deck and moved toward her. The woman gasped as he reached out and stretched the long mane of hair tied behind her. As he brought the blade down, the child screamed. Okay. So in the book, she's got that long ponytail that we saw. Yeah, and he just kind of grabs the ponytail and chops it off. Yeah. I like that better. The way it was presented, it's like they were trying to make us think that he was actually 
cutting her. Oh, yeah. The way they framed it, he grabs her by the neck, pushes her down, and then you see Enola as the knife is sweeping across the frame. It would have been insane. Like, straight up crazy if the Mariner had murdered Helen here. Yes, it would have. And even trying to make us think that he did, it just seems extreme. And I hate the whole haircutting thing. It really bothers me. But the way that it's presented to us also bothers me. Yeah. It's just so... Okay, I'm kind of talking myself into it a little bit in my head. So I'll, okay. do, I'll do so out loud. She ruined something of his. So he is ruining something of hers. Now, both of those are not necessarily in a permanent state of ruin. The boat can be repaired. The hair will grow. Yep. Nothing here is permanent. Nothing here is horrific. So, okay, I'm talking myself into the haircutting thing a little bit. <laughs> I still don't like the way it's presented to us that they're trying to make us think that he's doing her bodily harm. Yeah. I like the idea from the book where he just walks up to her, grabs her ponytail, and chops it off. Okay, what I like, I like about that, that is that she still has the ponytail from the atoll. We see several days go by here in the movie. And Helen's hair is no longer tied up. Yeah. As someone with long hair, Julia. Yeah. In a situation like this, is it better to just leave your hair in a ponytail? Yes. I'm going to tell you a story. So when I used to go to girls camp over the summer when I was a early teenager and mid-teenager, I have a lot of hair. It's thick. It's heavy. It's frizzy and big and just so thick. My sister and I both have very, very thick hair. So what my mom would do, she's a pro at French braids, like so tight, I'll give you a headache. The upside of that is that she would give us a French braid before we left for camp. And then a week later when we got home, that hair would not have budged. It would have survived swimming and sweat and sleeping. It would have survived all of that. So that during camp, I never had to wash my hair. When I would shower, I would get some soap in it and then just rinse it out, but I would not undo the braid. And that was magical. I did not have to take care of my hair at all. So it is better just to put it up in some way and just leave it there. And even now, I don't know how much you pay attention, but I know that when my hair starts to get dirty, the first thing I do is that's when it starts going up in a ponytail yeah. and in a bun. When my hair is clean, that's when it gets to be down. And they don't have the ability to wash their hair. Maybe on the atoll, they had some sort of soap that they made from fat on the atoll, but they yeah. don't have that here. The mariner doesn't care about that kind of thing. And the only water available to wash your hair is salt water. And that's not any good for your hair either. Yeah. So the best thing for it to do is just to be out of the way and just let it get dirty. Hair passes a point of dirtiness. There's a phase of greasiness, and then it kind of passes beyond that phase. <laughs> and it is something else entirely. I'm a little surprised that Helen doesn't do that thing that you see in movies like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, where the really long hair is braided and then bunned so that it's up off your neck, up off your shoulders. Right. But still with that length. And I suspect that that is why Enola's hair is braided. Because Enola wasn't the only child we saw in the atoll yeah. with braided hair. We saw a boy with braided hair, too. A little blonde kid, yeah. yeah. Another thing I like about the book, cutting off the ponytail in one smooth motion, is that 
the strands that the mariner is able to get from that hair in order to fix the rope and line on his boat is going to be a lot more consistently lengthed than what he's doing here in the movie where he's swiping wildly at the side of her head because those strands are going to be all sorts of different lengths. They're also not kept together. Like half of them probably fell through the net into the ocean. You mentioned using Helen's hair to help repair the damage to the ship. Is that mentioned in the book? Or is that your headcanon? That is something that I picked up from the Mariner's performance here. Because as he climbs out of the water, the first thing he does is he grabs at a line that is dangling nearby. And it is a shredded line. Like a rope that is very frayed at the end because it was broken in some way. And I know for a fact, as was described earlier in this movie, that they use hair for rope. And so if he's got a lot of rope that needs repairing it would make sense that he would cut off Helen's hair in order to use it to repair his lines. Okay. Okay. Well, then that brings me to like more thoughts about the whole hair cutting thing. If he had, again, communicated, if he had talked to her and said, hey, I need your hair to help me repair this, she would have said, okay. She would have given it to him. Yeah, she was in a very apologetic mood. Yep. Looking to make good on the damage that she did. Mm Mm-hmm. And the state of the hair that he took, it just doesn't feel useful. You know what does feel useful that we will get to next week is Enola's hair. Because it's all pre-braided? Because it's pre-braided. Yeah. (laughs) And you can tell her cut was not done in so much anger. Hers is so much more even. Yeah. It still bothers me, though, that he could have gotten so much more hair off of Helen. Right? Right? We've already talked about her hair months ago at this point and its potential for selling to help make rope. You know who else has long hair in this scene? The Mariner. The Mariner. And he never sacrifices any of his hair. Right? (laughs) Well, now it's a point of pride. Right. (laughs) Now he can't cut his hair because that would be admitting that Enola was right. And I don't know. I have not seen Kevin Costner recently with... Shorn hair. Let me see if I can pull up a picture of him him from Superman versus Batman or whatever it's called. He's in a new movie or miniseries. I can't remember the name of it, but it's Yellowstone. Yes. It's a family drama set on a ranch sort of setting, but he's wearing a hat the whole time. So I can't see his hair. So Kevin Costner in Man of Steel and the uh, subsequent sequel to that has the close cropped hair on the side with it combed nicely on top, you know, like men with a full head of hair will do. And it looks pretty good on him. Definitely better than the long hair look that he has in this movie. (laughs) I'll give him that. And apparently he's also in a movie called Criminal, where he's got the sides of his head shaved down with just the hair on the top, which is also a look that the Mariner could have done. The fact that we don't see more people with undercuts in Waterworld kind of surprises me. Frankly, in any sort of post-apocalyptic setting, I would like to be shorn. Hair is not worth it. (laughs) Maybe people who have hair that's easier to keep. My hair is incredibly difficult to keep. Yeah. And honestly, I I would make sure that my mother survives, first of all, (laughs) so that she can continually French braid my hair. (laughs) And that's the only reason. <laughs> but 
seriously, I would just shave off my hair. Yeah. Hair's not worth it. Well, I don't have a lot of hair on top of my head, but in a post-apocalypse, I would probably keep the beard. Yeah, because the beard is fine all by itself. Exactly. You go many, many days, even weeks sometimes, without doing anything to it. And it's fine. Yeah. It's fine. It needs to get washed, but if it doesn't get washed, I don't think that's the worst thing. Coarse hair can handle a lot. Exactly. As far as not getting washed. Plus, if I grow it out long enough, then I could braid that too. Yes, you can. You probably would. <laughs> Gripping Helen's hair in his hands, he says, don't ever touch anything on my boat again. And then he stands to walk away. Now, in the movie here, Enola pipes up and says she said she was sorry. The Mariner turns to look at her, and Enola continues, that means you're supposed to say something back. In the book, it's a little different. Good, because it's horrible in the movie. So the Mariner cuts off Helen's braid, tosses it onto the deck, says, the next time you touch anything on my boat, I'll choose something else to cut off. So a bit more threatening oh, to Helen. yes. Ha. <laughs> The woman dropped to the deck in an exhausted pile, body heaving, but she wasn't crying. Lower lip trembling, the child stepped forward and blocked his path. She said she was sorry, the girl said. He stepped around her and tried to find some corner of the boat where he could be alone for a while before he once again began repairing his home. In the book, he does not retaliate against Enola. Good, because I don't like this whole retaliation thing. Yeah. It makes me uncomfortable. It feels like... He's treating them this way because they're women, which may not be untrue. I just don't like the feel of it. I like the idea that their hair is useful in repairing the ship. That was Helen's fault. Mm -hmm. But all he had to do was say so. You broke my home. I need your hair to fix it. You don't have a choice in this. It would have been very helpful. Instead of only saying, don't ever touch anything on my boat again. If he had said, you made a mess of things. And then he's holding the hair in front of her. You're going to help make it right or something like that. Right. I'm not a Hollywood screenwriter, so I, I can't come <laughs> up with grade A dialogue off the top of my head. But make it clear that because this is her fault, she's the one whose hair is going to be used to fix it. Yeah. I don't love the idea of punishment for her mistake. But on the other hand, there is a price that must be paid because of her mistake. Right. There are repairs to the ship that have to happen for their own safety and survival because of her choices. The Mariner does not have insurance. Right. So <laughs> it is only fair and only proper that Helen have a large part in fixing what happened. Mm -hmm. But the Mariner's attitude about it is what I don't like. And then there's Enola. Her statement of she said she was sorry. That means you're supposed to say something back. I understand that when you're teaching children about apologizing, you also have to teach children about accepting an apology. But when you teach children those things, circumstances are generally very simple mm -hmm. and they don't have lasting repercussions. Yeah. They are, he stole my toy and made me cry. So he's going to apologize and you are going to accept the apology. No big deal. You share the toy. Everybody's learned a lesson. But as you grow older and older, things get more complex and it's no longer enough to say you're sorry. There oftentimes has to be more. A good example in this movie of that is that Enola was told not to touch his crayons. And did she apologize? Helen apologized for her yeah. sort of thing. But Enola didn't change her behavior. 
which we see the results of in this minute, <laughs> where the Mariner sees the crayon in her hand and knows that she has been continuing the behavior that he already said was not okay. I want to interject here yeah. by saying that I love how Anola is shouting at him. She is being very judgy and talking about how his behavior is wrong. And then he's staring at her, his eyes flick down, and he sees that she is holding one of the crayons after he confiscated a crayon from her. And she looks down, sees that he's noticed the crayon, and then tries to hide it in her hand. Right. By just folding it down into that grubby little fist of hers. The more complex that mistakes become, the less I'm sorry is going to cut it. And I'm sorry doesn't absolve you of responsibility. It is the first step towards fixing whatever has gone wrong. Mm -hmm. But taking steps after that is also important. Of course, the classic step of not doing that behavior again. You can't keep apologizing for doing the same thing over and over again and expect people to accept your apology. You have to actually change yeah. your behavior, Enola. But there's also, in this case, some serious damage has been done. And Helen is responsible for that. And just because she said she was sorry that it happened doesn't mean she, one, shouldn't be punished. Two, shouldn't be held accountable, which is the same thing, but shouldn't be responsible for fixing the damage. And my last point, maybe, is that Enola says, she said she was sorry. That means you have to say something back. He did say something back. Yep. He said, if you ever touch my ship again, or don't touch my ship, or whatever, he already did respond to her apology. Yeah. And it wasn't really an acceptance, but it also wasn't a rejection. It was a, this is the new rule. Because you did this thing, here is a new rule for the boat. <laughs> is that you don't touch it. Yeah. So he did respond. As far as Helen apologizing is concerned, she says, I'm really sorry, I'm sorry. Then she says, you didn't give me much choice, you ran away. She's trying to explain herself, but she's shifting responsibility off of herself onto the Mariner. She is. Saying, what I did caused trouble, but you are the one who forced my hand. When, in all reality... I'm not willing to write out, say that the Mariner forced her to do anything. Right. I don't think he's innocent in that regard. Because she didn't know what he was doing, she had to come up with her own plan. Mm -hmm. Even though he did have a plan, but she didn't know he had a plan. Because he didn't communicate in any sort of way yeah. he had a plan. I know we keep harping on this communication issue, but there should have been an orientation <laughs> when they came aboard welcome about, to the trimaran yeah here are the weapons here are the locations of all the weapons do not touch these in the event of an attack this is what i am going to do here are my options so i may do any one of these depending on the situation but i've got it under control in the event of an attack you do this you go down below and don't do anything at all i have the defenses necessary to take care of this boat there should have been an orientation like exits are located at the fore middle and aft of the vehicle yes thank you in the event of an emergency lights will illuminate on the floor leading you to the closest exit which may actually be behind you exactly <laughs> all he had to do as soon as the gunfire started raining down on them is shout get below deck yes 
And he shouts at her when he feels it's necessary to cut the line. So it's not like it's unreasonable to ask him to shout a quick command and frankly expect to be followed. He Mm -hmm. is the captain now. Yeah. (laughs) When the captain and owner and sole sailor of this boat tells you to do something while under attack, you do it. Yeah. You do it. Even if you don't like him or don't agree with him, you do it anyways. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. We're going to leave it with the Mariner staring at Enola, which is where we're going to pick up next week. So come back next time. Helen and Enola will show off their matching haircuts. Deacon will practice his driving and the pilot will try to drown his sorrow. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching Mad Max Minute and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash MadMaxMin. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld Episode 38. We'll see you next time.